This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. Ontario's new online gaming market officially launched this past Monday. It includes casino and esports betting. So residents in this province can gamble more easily while in the comfort of their own home. But it's this aspect which is raising concerns among gambling addiction experts who say increased access to gaming may not be healthy mentally and financially. Libby brought up the topic with the Zoomer squad, asking whether they think legalized online gambling will put more vulnerable older people at risk. Peter Mugridge is senior editor at Zoomer magazine. David Kravitz is chief membership officer of CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. And Bill Van Gorder is chief operating officer and chief policy officer at CARP, a new vision of aging. Well, older people do like to gamble. We know that. In fact, uh, anybody who has talked with folks who run uh, the in-person ca- casinos or did before COVID uh, knew that uh, Fridays, when the when the uh, the Friday of the month that the checks came out, they were overwhelmed with uh, older people. So we know that many uh, older uh, Canadians do gamble and enjoy enjoy doing it. Half a million online gamblers among the 65 plus in Canada. So they, they do it. As to whether they're made more vulnerable, I think that's a very contentious position and there's no real hard evidence. Our seniors uniquely capable of being fooled into risking their money foolishly. Um, I don't think there's any evidence of that. You could argue they are more vulnerable because if something goes wrong and they don't have a income coming in, on the other hand, they've had by definition, decades and decades and decades of being a consumer of, you know, hearing ads, watching ads, reading ads, <clears throat> tuning out messages that are misleading or that they're not interested in. So I don't know why they're any more uh, susceptible to being tricked into doing something or motivated into doing something that they wouldn't otherwise want to do. I don't think that's necessarily true. Well, we uh, know there's a particular fondness for slots. Uh, and Peter, is it going to translate to online gambling? And do you think that people are more vulnerable? I, I'm wondering whether the, um, you know, the people who go to casinos, uh, you know, it's an outing for them. They, they get a free lunch off and, you know, they go with their friends. They go on a bus if they're out of town. It's sort of an outing for them, and and uh, there's a social element to it. Although you know, there's also the risk of losing money. But you know, there there is a there is an element about it that um, doesn't exist in online betting. And um, I I wonder if seniors will be any more you know duped into you know uh, losing money online than than the younger generation. I I, I think. You know, I think we see them visibly at casinos, so we, you know, but but that might just be a factor of it being a, an outing for them, a, a social moment, and uh, they're no more susceptible to betting maybe than than the younger generations, or problem betting. I should I shouldn't say. Yeah. 
I, I think uh, I think Peter's uh, got a good uh, point there, and I'm not sure how much it's going to affect uh, people who are CARP members. In fact, in Atlantic Canada, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a survey done of older Atlantic Canadians asking them about their gambling habits and assumed that they gambled, and the feedback was very negative against the. This, how dare you suggest that uh, we all we all gamble? So. Uh, uh, there could be a, an economic uh, point here, too, in terms of uh, at, at what uh, level of the economic uh, structure are people really attracted to uh, to gambling. And uh, because uh, seniors are looking for social activities these, uh, these days uh, coming out of COVID, they're tired, many of them, of doing so much online. I think this might be a difficult time for uh, Ontario to enter into trying to promote this. There's gambling games that don't require betting. There's all kinds of poker websites where you're just playing for points and fake chips and so on for the amusement. There's a whole industry of brain games and interactive uh, instant reward. Click here, follow the bouncing, whatever they are. So I think there's a tremendous uptake of interest in online entertainment as such. Gambling, I see as a subset of that. But I don't see it as some uh, need for you know any pearl clutching about these poor uh, beleaguered seniors who are being tricked into uh, you know gambling their their life savings. So I don't see any evidence of that. David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer of CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. And Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. With the cost of gas still at record highs, the governing Ford PCs at Queen's Park have introduced legislation that will reduce the gas tax by 5.7 cents a liter and the fuel tax by 5.3 cents a liter. But there's a catch. The price cuts would not take effect until July 1st, which means the Tories would need to be reelected for them to be implemented. And the cuts would only be temporary for six months. On Monday, Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, joined Libby to offer some explanation and analysis. Well, 5.7 cents plus HST. So you're looking on gasoline side, a decrease of six cents a liter. The uh, fuel taxes, that should have been, the word there should have been diesel because it's actually yeah. diesel prices. It'll drop 5.3 plus uh, another uh, 0.4 cents, uh, so 5.7 cents, 5.8 cents uh, for diesel. That's critical, by the way, because that's the stuff that motivates the price uh, of other things that we uh, often take for granted, but uh, food prices, lumber prices in the mix. So uh, it's uh, diesel, of course, is the workhorse of our economy, like it or not, and so it dropping could have a little bit of a positive impact. But, you know, we're going to be dealing with higher prices in the summer, and what that really means is, yeah, you might Maybe three or four dollars on a tank full, but uh, other factors, including as you mentioned one of them, the federal government's carbon tax, now at uh, what twelve point five cents a liter with HST and uh, fifteen point two cents of diesel, uh, pretty much takes away anything the province is giving. Do you have any insight on why it is just being put into effect for six months? Uh, perhaps they believe that uh, that takes us right to the end of twenty twenty two. 
oil prices may begin to tame and calm down a little bit and that there won't be that need. Uh, I tend to think, as I did last year at this time when I predicted uh, buck seventy-five, buck eighty for a liter of gasoline, that uh, we would uh, continue to see uh, higher prices. This is not going away. Oil is going to be in high demand and short supply for the foreseeable future. And of course, we have, uh, if that weren't uh, bad enough, we have politicians at the federal level who definitely want these prices to go high and are giddy over the fact you and I have to pay much more because their goal is to make it so prohibitive that uh, we don't emit anything. And that is as a result of all of this, we meet not only our climate goals, but uh, we can also boast on international fronts that we are getting our job done where the rest of the world is not. Well, last week in the United States, Joe Biden started releasing a massive amount of reserves. Is that something that we should think about? Stupid decision. We don't have reserves. We actually have uh, what we could do is displace all of Russia and oil in this world. But what he's doing is he's signaling to the market, I'm going to flood the market temporarily. But I have a responsibility to ensure that that reserve remains viable, because if I don't, then prices are really going to go up. And you saw that. So we saw prices on the, on the markets last week drop, uh, what, 4 or $5 a barrel, $6 a barrel. They're back up $3.5 a barrel this morning because analysts are looking and saying, wait a minute, you're basically using up a reserve. You're drying up that which we need as a real cushion should the situation with, for instance, Russia get really bad. It's meant for a crisis. It's not meant because you don't like the price of gasoline. Biden did this because he knows he's, his uh, Congress is likely to lose seats come November at the uh, the midterms. And that could mean real problems, not just for the Biden administration, but for his green energy push, which uh, the turns out Americans are not willing to accept in quite the same way Canadians have. What is your prediction? Let's assume that the PCs get reelected. Uh, let's assume that uh, things get a little better on the COVID front by the summer. Where do you think the gas price will be then? Yeah, Libby, I think we're back to 190. Um, and look, um, maybe even before we get there, uh, because oil will go back to $120, $125 a barrel with or without the crisis in Ukraine, we just have a shortage of oil. It's as simple as that. We've spent a lot of time saying we don't want to invest in oil. Move your investments into these green things. And I'm, look, I'm not angry at them. I'm just simply saying when the world wants more and you produce less, price has to give. This week, though, we're going to see a two cent increase on Tuesday, Wednesday, rather, um, pushing us to 170. And get ready for the shift over from winter to summer gasoline spec. That's that's a thing. Been around for 30 years. That's going to push push up gasoline prices at least, if I'm looking at the markets today, $0.08 cents a litre, likely by the end of the week, if not the beginning of next week. So uh, just a heads up for your listeners here, Olivia. Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, supporting Ukrainians fleeing Putin's war in their homeland. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We've been reporting extensively on Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine and the ongoing efforts to bring Ukrainians fleeing the war to Canada. The Trudeau Liberals recently introduced a special program intended to reduce bureaucracy for Ukrainians who've left their country during the brutal war on their homeland. 
Early this past week, Federal Immigration Minister Sean Fraser joined Libby for a conversation about the Ukrainians arriving in Canada. We launched the special program over uh, just over two weeks ago, and we've now seen in excess of 90,000 applications and 14,500 approvals come through. Uh, that, that's in addition to those travelers who would have been approved prior to the uh, the, the new system coming into effect. And have any of those people actually arrived here? Uh, we have seen uh, since the beginning of the year, there's more than 12,000 Ukrainians that have arrived. I would point out under the new special program, it's only been a couple of days since the two week, uh, the first uh, tranche would have been approved uh, because there is a two week uh, processing time. Uh, but we have seen a significant number of Ukrainians arrive in Canada. I just don't have in front of me the breakdown uh, as to who came under which particular travel document. In the past, the requirement for biometrics for the security clearances were cited as a big impediment, and you removed some of those restrictions. You've also said that we seem to, at this point, be processing a, a very large number of people with those appointments. How are we doing that? They're digital applications, but we do have uh, people on the ground. That, that's for the, the special travel visa. Uh, but we do have people who are actually operating uh, biometrics kits and taking appointments with individuals. Uh, it takes a lot of logistics and planning and staff on the ground to make sure that we have the capacity to process as many people as possible. Uh, and, of course, for those low-risk cohorts we identified uh, a little more than a week ago, uh, we've uh, waived altogether the requirements of, of a biometric analysis for children up to the age of 18, for those over 60, as well as those who have a travel history to Canada where they've followed all of the rules, because we simply don't see a risk with uh, with certain cohorts that uh, would justify uh, maintaining the, uh, the requirement for biometrics. But uh, we're finding right now that with the right uh, human resources and, and equipment in place, um, it's not been... Um, uh, not been the, the sticking point uh, for, for many people that, that, uh, that, that are now approved to come to Canada. Under this special program, it gives people the right to work, but they're not classified as refugees. And you've said that they will be getting some supports that refugees get, but not all. So since they are actually refugees, what exactly were you referring to there? On Monday of last week, uh, we shared details uh, of our plan to extend settlement supports that are made available to refugees through settlement agencies. We're looking at what further supports we can provide, and we're having conversations with our provincial and territorial partners to figure out which supports they're better positioned to provide. Those, of course, who come in on an open work permit are eligible once they're working to um, uh, to access uh, the, the ordinary health care system, for example. Uh, but we're having those conversations with, with provinces and territories to figure out who's best positioned to provide which kinds of resources. And I would point out there is uh, uh, one big difference uh, that separates this group from a, a traditional refugee resettlement process. Uh, when people come to Canada as refugees, they plan to stay forever because the, their ability to return to their homeland has uh, in most cases, disappeared permanently. With respect to the people who are coming under this special visa, the reason it's unique is that almost to a person, they they want to go home when it's safe to do so. They are not abandoning Ukraine. To the contrary, they want to uh, seek safe haven and return when it's safe to do so. We're actually seeing reports from the ground right now that a lot of people who are applying to Canada's system 
are taking it out uh, as an insurance policy, effectively, because they don't want to move too far away from Ukraine in case it becomes possible for them to go home sooner than expected. It's a really unique dynamic, and inventing new programs to respond to a unique situation in real time is a real challenge, but it's one that I feel that, uh, that, that the government of Canada is more than up to. Federal Immigration Minister Sean Fraser in conversation with Libby Snymer early this past week. Later in the week, Ontario Premier Doug Ford announced a $300 million plan to support Ukrainians arriving in this province, including an opportunity for them to apply for health care. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It has been a long-standing anomaly in cancer treatment in Ontario, including during the years when our own Libby Snymer was going through her cancer treatment. Chemotherapy and other types of drugs delivered intravenously in hospital are covered by the government, but not when it's in pill form, even though it is covered in some other provinces. The Ontario Drug Plan for Seniors covers many cancer treatment drugs for people 65 and over, and private workplace health insurance covers others for some people. But the cost can be a huge financial hardship. Libby revisited the topic on Tuesday when she was joined by NDP health critic France Jelena and Rebecca Grundy, who was diagnosed with stage four brain cancer in 2018 at the age of 28. There are several patients under the age of 65 that are diagnosed with cancer that their treatments come in these oral formulations in a pill form or infusion, and these pills um, can conveniently and safely be taken at home. Um, uh, but unfortunately, like you were even saying before, uh, with the advancements of cancer treatments, the majority are now in these formulations, but because it's a take-home rather than taken in hospital, we're faced with delays, dollars, and distress. And that's why we were out yesterday on the south lawn of Queen's Park. Like many other young cancer patients, I had to exhaust all my private drug insurance. So for me, I actually only had $5,000 as a cap with my private plan for drugs. Uh, and that was exhausted right away within like the first month and a half. My treatment cost me over $6,000 a month, or it cost $6,000 a month. And I had to take this uh, treatment for eight months. Uh, this was at a time where I was off work, on long-term disability, and making a very reduced income. And then after which, I had to apply for the Ontario Trillium Drug Program. And I knew that this would take several weeks for approval. Um, some patients, it even takes like up to a month, if not more. Uh, and finally, once you get that letter saying that you've been approved, after much delay, sleepless nights, and anxiety, whether you're going to get your treatment funded, I was given a bill for $4,000 as a deductible to pay for my treatment. And that's something that, like I said, this situation is not unique. Most people that go through that program must pay a 4% deductible, uh, which is equal to uh, 4% of their household earnings prior to getting sick. Um, and so that's just another barrier to access all these um, approved cancer treatments that are stamped by Health Canada, listed on the formulary, but for some reason, just because we're under the age of 65, we have all these hoops to jump through. Plus, why is this anomaly still going on? I would say lack of political will 
the the example that Rebecca share, I hear examples like this every single week uh, where, you know, like to say that we have the trillion that will cover your drugs for many of them who've come to me, like it's a six, eight, ten weeks delay before they have proven that they have no coverage or exhausted their drug insurance coverage. And then for the government to actually action off and say you qualify for Trillium. But then even once you've done all of this, you're still on the hook for 4% of your previous year's family income, which for many people, the previous year, they were not sick. They were working full time, had hopefully a decent job. Now they are sick. Um, they need their medication. They need the medication right away. They cannot wait for the government six, eight, 12 weeks to do their work. And, and then they still have to pay up front and wait even longer for the government to pay them back. The whole thing is, brings so much hardship uh, to people who are already having a tough time in life at the time. Many other provinces have solved this. Take-home cancer drugs is covered. Uh, this is a bill that uh, the NDP, I have put forward many, many times to the liberal governments before, to the conservative government now, and I get the same answer. Oh, we have a drug program. It's called Trillium, and it's just wonderful, which is not. NDP health critic Franz Jelena and Rebecca Grundy, who was diagnosed with stage 4 brain cancer at the age of 28 four years ago. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Jim in Pickering phoned about getting his fourth COVID shot. Since you came on air, I did call Durham Health to book my fourth uh, vaccination shot. I don't even feel I need it. And and Libby, I go to the library. I hate to say it, but I go to a bar and people aren't wearing masks. So I'm feeling confident, I'm feeling healthy, but I'm just going to do it because it's offered and I'm following through. John in Brampton phoned about the Backyard Chicken Pilot Project in Toronto, which he feels should not be made permanent. Concerning the backyard farm and chicken, um, it's not a bad idea, but it, it could come with consequences, which I know many of us may not be thinking about. Because when you're raising chicken, uh, the, 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 the chicken have what you call from the feed, the, the piece and everything. It have a smell which it, it attract raccoon, uh, squirrel. It attract, uh, rats. It attract flies. It, it attract a lot of other reptiles. Maybe you don't know where, where they're hiding, but when they get those smells, to be honest, I'm telling you, it, it encourages all those, those sorts of, uh, obstacles. And now. 
Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Raymond in Etobicoke, who phoned ahead of the federal budget release to talk about a change he would like to see, which would provide more options for Zoomers. Mandatory withdrawals from the RIF is what bothers me. First time that affected me, my income went up $10,000. And and this it continues on. And, and I don't have, you know, millions, but I've written to the Minister of Finance, to my MP, and even the Prime Minister over the last couple of years, zero response. Not even, a, you know, oh, thank you for your blah, blah, you know. And uh, it it just goes on and on, and uh, we're forgotten about. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. And call our fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.